Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I am with Keaton Ross, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. He recently spoke with several Oklahoma precinct officials about their motivation for working the polls and pressure they're feeling heading into Election Day. Keaton, what kinds of Oklahomans are signing up to be poll workers? The stereotype uh, you might think of initially is, you know, an elderly person that's retired and just has a lot of time on their hands. And uh, certainly those folks uh, play a huge role in, in helping our elections go on. But Really, it's a, it's a wide variety of people that that are signing up. I, I talk to folks in their mid-20s, early 30s uh, that will take a day off of work to do this. So um, just a broad section of people that, that are helping Election Day happen. What does the you know, average day of a precinct official look like? It's very long. Uh, you might be taking a day off of work, but it's definitely not a relaxing day. Um Usually, if you're if you're the head of a precinct, you'll you'll arrive around five thirty or six a.m. to make sure everything's up and running, uh, ballots are ready to hand out, that sort of thing. Then the polls are open from seven a.m. to seven p.m. Uh, you're there for the whole day without any official break, and then afterwards, making sure everything's ready to uh, be sent off and, and counted correctly, and and all that's good to go. Uh, on a smooth day, you might be done by by eight thirty at night. So, pretty long day, but uh, you know, lots of folks are still willing to do it. Now, you smoke with really a, a mix of both veteran and rookie poll workers uh, for your story. Uh, for those who have been at it for a while, have they noticed any big changes in recent years? Yeah, we've we've seen in our in our current political environment a. Uh, Studies have looked into this, uh, just, you know, an increasing number of threats against local election officials and in some cases even poll workers. Um, nobody I talked to uh, recalled a scene where someone was, you know, overtly hostile or, or very threatening. I think kind of the common theme I got was just that now compared to maybe even a decade ago, there's more willingness to kind of in a polling place, you know, make comments or share your political views, which, you know, if you're if you're in charge of running that precinct, you kind of have to bring that down because that that is not allowed. Now, uh, did anybody you talked to mention any concerns about uh, the possibility of harassment or intimidation on Election Day? Uh, it was it was certainly not something I think people are taking lightly as as a possibility. I think gen- generally they're pretty uh, confident in the training they've received, kind of what they're supposed to do if it escalates to a certain point. I think a big explanation is that if someone's getting upset over a law, it's not our rule that we made, it's a state law. And if you have a problem with that, you can contact your representative or your state senator. I think that's a common de-escalation strategy. Uh, but it's certainly something I think that is on folks' radars more now than than in previous election cycles. 
Now, uh, you asked this sample of poll workers whether state or local officials could do do anything to better support them. What kind of responses did you get? A, a fairly common response I got was that, uh, you know, there could be a little more work done just even getting the message out that this is uh, a possibility for, for people, especially younger people. Um, you know, I talked to one married couple um, – and uh, the guy signed up to be a poll worker in, in college and uh, had no idea you, you even got paid to do the work. He was just doing it out of, you know, feeling like he could help out. So I think they feel like that, uh, a little more messaging that this is something that's out there and something you can do to help out, uh, as well as also something that I heard was just if there was effort um, – you know, on, on behalf of employers or, or the state to, to give a flexible option to take a day off and, and help work the polls, uh, that, that could also help as far as getting more younger people involved. Now, uh, recruiting poll workers is more challenging in some counties than others. Why is that? That's, that's, uh, could be for several reasons. One, one particular reason um, is just the, the state law that requires different parties at each precinct. Um, so you, you have to have at least two members of, or one member each of the two largest political parties. Um, and you look at some counties, especially in uh, the western part of the state, very, very heavily Republican. Um, so that, you know, you, you may be able to find people, uh, the, the right number of people, but you need to have that certain party mix. So, you know, I actually talked to a guy who switched his affiliation from Republican to Democrat to be more helpful to the election board. Um, so that's that's certainly a, a consideration and um, some, something that's playing out in, in some of these rural counties. Oh, in your reporting, did you see any common themes here for what's motivating uh, people to become poll workers in Oklahoma? I think a common theme was just civic pride, service, feeling like, you know, you're one cog in the machine helping this this day play out. Um, that That's important for um, our state to keep running, to keep democracy going. I think that that was a big, uh, big part of it is just, you know, we, these folks are on the ground doing doing the job necessary to get these votes counted and, and keep elections running smoothly. And I think a lot of people realize that. Now, aside from uh, getting the $100 check and, and feeling civic pride, what other benefits are there to work in the polls? Um, you know, I talked to one precinct official in, in Logan County who actually uh, works as a legislative assistant uh, for a couple of state representatives. Uh, so they're, they're taking constituent calls and, and talking with folks regularly. And she mentioned going through the process and seeing how the system is run, how the votes are counted, um, kind of the technology behind the scenes. When she's heard from folks that that have doubts about the the security of our elections or that sort of thing, she said she's now able to uh, say, you know, I've done it, I've seen it firsthand. This is uh, something that's very secure and works. So I think that's one thing as 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 you go through that and and get that firsthand knowledge of of how our elections are run. That's something. You're able to share share with other people and um, kind of get good information out there just about how the process works. 
All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's story about poll workers in Oklahoma. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. You'll find it all on our website at oklahomawatch.org. As part of a week-long series of stories about the state under Stitt, reporter Whitney Bryan looks back at the governor's promises to improve public health. Overall, Oklahomans' health has declined during Stitt's term, but he did deliver on a few of those campaign promises. Uh, We have a a series of stories publishing throughout the week that dive into education, public health, criminal justice, and workforce. Uh, Whitney, tell us about what inspired that reporting. Well, Stitt ran on a platform of making Oklahoma a top 10 state, which he's actually now calling just an aspirational goal. Um, But at the time, I'm sure most Oklahomans have heard him say that, you know, at some point over the the past four years. Uh, But that's really vague. So in 2018, just days after Stitt was elected, uh, reporter Paul Moneys wrote about some of his specific promises, some things he said during his campaign that he would fix or improve. Um, So now that the next gubernatorial election is approaching, we wanted to take a look at those promises and see where he delivered and and where he fell short. Well, you're part of this uh, series focused on public health. What did Stitt promise to do to improve the health of Oklahomans? Well, I went back through news coverage of his first campaign, uh, state of the state speeches, press releases, et cetera. And I found five areas that really seem to come up over and over again. Uh, He talks a lot about health rankings, specifically America's health rankings, uh, which is federal data. He talks about managed care, abortion, uh, rural access to health care and mental health. Those seem to be the the reoccurring themes, and those are areas that I looked into. And, of course, you know, the wrench in the public health story is COVID. He obviously didn't campaign on, on anything related to COVID because it didn't exist at that time, um, but it's certainly one of the biggest public health crises of the century, so we took a look at that too. Well, let's start with that. Uh, remind us, Uh, How did Stitt handle COVID-19 and what promises did he make? Well, the first big news about Stitt's response to COVID was actually a tweet that he posted with his kids from a busy restaurant in Oklahoma City. That was just a couple of days after NBA players tested positive for COVID, which is really when it arrived in the state. Um, National experts were advising Americans to stay home. And then, you know, you see this tweet of Stitt. Uh, in a busy restaurant with his kids. So that sort of started uh, what was a lot of conflicting messages coming from the state um, and medical experts. He received kind of a mix of praise and admonishment for his approach to the virus, which really focused on protecting personal freedoms um, and what he called pro-business. So personal responsibility was sort of his tagline throughout that period. Things like um, the Trump rally really highlight his protecting freedoms, as he puts it. So he invites uh, then-President Donald Trump to Tulsa for this rally where thousands of, you know, unmasked supporters came. Uh, Actually, a former presidential candidate, Herman Cain, died from COVID um, about a month after that event. 
Stitt was also the first governor who contracted COVID, and he frequently criticized mask mandates, business closures, um, and he pushed for restaurants and schools to remain open regardless of outbreaks. So today, Oklahoma has the 13th highest COVID death rate in the country, and I asked uh, Governor Stitt about that a couple of weeks back when I interviewed him, and he said that he was proud of the way that he handled the pandemic, and he dismissed that data as unreliable. Well, mental health uh, certainly took a big hit nationwide during the pandemic. What did Stitt say he would do to improve mental health, and did he get there? Actually, Stitt rarely talks about mental health, and when he does, it's usually about either caring for first responders or through the lens of his wife Sarah's tumultuous childhood she grew up with, parents who have mental illness. Um, this spring, he did sign a bill creating mental wellness division under the Department of Public Safety. So in other words, he sort of delivered on that promise to um, try to care for first responders' mental health. Uh, however, Oklahoma's overall suicide rates have continued to increase uh, through his administration and were one of the worst in the nation, uh, both during and after COVID. Uh, that has, has certainly not improved during his term. So he fell short in addressing suicide rates across the state, but delivered uh, on some efforts to assist first responders. In what what other areas did Stitt accomplish his health goals? Well, Stitt has long touted privatization as a way to make Medicaid or Sooner Care more efficient, and he did sign legislation um, approving a managed care program. There's still some opposition to that program, which hasn't gone into effect yet, especially from physicians who are worried that they're their reimbursement rates are going to decrease. So we won't really know exactly how that's going to impact Oklahomans covered by Sooner Care until that goes into effect uh, likely late next year. He also delivered on a promise to sign what he calls pro-life legislation. So five of the uh, abortion restriction bills that he has signed are currently in effect, and they made Oklahoma the first state in the country to restrict abortion at conception. He's also formed a task force to make recommendations about supporting mothers um, in light of some of those changes. So, again, that's an area where we'll have to wait and see what the fallout looks like for pregnant people and children across the state. And lastly, he, he promised to expand telehealth, uh, especially in rural communities, as a way to get care out to residents in those areas. That obviously increased during COVID nationwide and in Oklahoma as well. So, uh, based on his promise, uh, bottom line, did Stitt make Oklahoma a top 10 state in public health? Based on the rankings that Stitt himself references, we are still a very long way from being top 10 in health. The governor uses a data set called America's Health Rankings. That's federal data um, that comes from several different sources, including the CDC. And Oklahoma is... Uh, scraping the bottom of that list. When he took office in 2018, Oklahoma was ranked 43rd. And throughout his administration, we've fallen to 46th on that list. 
some of the biggest issues fueling that ranking are high rates of teen pregnancies, smoking, illegal drug use, and food insecurity. Um, According to that data, Oklahomans actually die at a younger age than a lot of other Americans. So according to those rankings cited by Stitt, Oklahoma is, is not top 10 state for health. Uh, when I spoke to him recently in our newsroom during an interview, um, you know, I asked him about that as well. And he told us he never expected to reach that goal and that the promise to be a top 10 state was more of a vision than a specific target. And uh, but using his criteria, uh, we've we've fallen a few slots That's closer correct. to the bottom, not closer to the top 10. That's correct. We started at 43rd when he took office, and we've fallen three spots to number 46 on that list. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. And listeners, you can read uh, Whitney's story, her contribution to the series of uh, The State Under Stitt at our website, oklahomawatch.org. Reporter Paul Money's kicked off a series of election preview stories uh, this week, looking at Republican Governor Kevin Stitt's record as he seeks a second term. Paul's story looked at Stitt's management style and how it influenced his approach as a, a self-styled outsider to Oklahoma government. Paul, what led to the series of stories looking at Stitt's time in office? Well, yes, we uh, we had examined this uh Back in 2018, right after he won election to the office, uh, we kind of had a story basically looking at what he had promised during the campaign in 2018 and then, uh, you know, various areas that he wanted to focus on in his first term as governor. So we kind of circled back to that story, took a look at what we put there and decided to have this series of stories look at uh, how he's fared. Well, why did you focus on Stitt's management style? Yeah, so he he styled himself as a, a obviously a CEO. He had a, a successful mortgage company, uh, 1,200, 1,500 employees now, um, had built it up from almost nothing starting out. Uh, he had a, biz- a background in college even where he sold textbooks door to door, got a lot of his early business experience point doing that and kind of definitely came from the entrepreneurial side of the business world and wanted to bring that approach to state government. So, uh, you know, what did he promise to bring to the governor's office? Well, first off, he said as an outsider, he had a fresh set of eyes to look at the problems that state government faces. Uh, he said he wanted to shake things up. Um, he has also kind of picked some fights with some folks, including some tribes. And during the first year of the coronavirus pandemic, um, he went against some medical advice, especially in the doctor's groups. Um, so he has definitely shaken things up. Um, he said he's not afraid of those um, criticisms when it comes with that, but he's he's definitely ridden that outsider status. But of course, now he has a record and is running for re-election. Now, uh, what was your impression as you worked on this story on on how well Stitt has adapted his CEO style to a government role? I think he had a a lot of broad plans uh, that weren't really hashed out immediately. Um, As he's gone on, he's kind of figured out he can't do everything all by himself. He needs help from the legislature to do that. In fact, he's talked several times as as kind of legislature as almost a board of directors. Um, You know, he's the state CEO. He calls himself that. He likes to be that that role. But he also still has to answer to folks in the legislature and, of course, ultimately the voters. Well, how did Stitt fill out his administration at the agency level and the cabinet level? Yeah, with, with this his first uh, run for public office, um, he had no natural kind of allies in state government to, to draw from, from experience in state government that he had. So he, he 
drew a lot from his experience in the business world, and particularly in the first part, this uh, group called the Young Presidents Organization, uh, which is kind of a mentoring group for um, business executives that reach the kind of top parts of their industries. Um, he had several cabinet members and agency directors from that group that he picked when he first filled out his administration, and he's continued as some of the turnover has gone on to, to draw, especially from the oil and gas sector, the executive management ranks. Now, it, you know, one of the things that comes up in many elections is a candidate will say, well, you know, I'd run it more like a business. Um, and uh, the other view is, well, government is not a business, right? It serves an entirely different function. A business is there to make a profit. A government is there to uh, serve the people it represents, right? right. So uh, do you think that after four years into this, uh, Stitt still believes that that CEO business-like approach uh, is is the way to run the, the state government. I still think he does. And he's he's obviously talked a lot about the metrics, and he has his own governor's dashboard that he's picked metrics that he wants to be judged on. Um, you know, some of them are not very uh, well-positioned right now. Um, obviously, some of the top 10 aspirational goals he's mentioned that we've not met in that first term. Um, but he's, he's still kind of feels that he needs to have outsiders and people coming in and out of his administration. In fact, the way he recruits, he's talked um, openly about, you know, asking some some folks who have made some money in their careers, uh, giving two years of their life to public service. Um, I do think that he, he understands that state government also has a lot of vendors and a business background is needed to kind of manage some of those vendors. Now, he has somewhat of a spotty record on that. In his first term, we've got a lot of scandals that have kind of rolled up based on some of these purchasing decisions that he's made um, and his people have made during the COVID uh, pandemic. Now, uh, Stitt was uh, in the Oklahoma Watch offices recently. You had interviewed him in his first year in office and now again uh, at the end of his fourth year. What's changed? Well, definitely one-on-one. He, he's um, he's always been a personal person to interview, um, but he has a more command of the issues this time around. Uh, he also... Um, you know, still believes he's got more work to do. Um, you know, he, he's pointed to some successes in his first term, but really wants to go a little bit more on a lot of the government technology side that he's kind of gotten bogged down in a couple of times, especially uh, the driver's license situation was a, a prime example of that, um, where we've had a lot of issues for technology and policy reasons that would have been problems with coming out of the pandemic. Um, so he's, he's definitely had a lot of challenges um, and still has a lot of goals to make in his second term if you, if the voters give him that. Oh, what, what effect did the coronavirus pandemic have on his governing style? Yeah, well, in many respects, the, the pandemic kind of gave him the authority that he would like to have as a CEO, a true CEO. I mean, basically, uh, the authority that the state uh, legislature gave him for emergency powers during the pandemic, he had a lot of uh, wiggle room on purchasing decisions. They could make quick decisions. They could buy it without bidding out contracts. They could waive um, purchase card limit rules that were already in place before the pandemic. And we saw a lot of the fallout from that. In fact, a lot of different places went quickly, spent a lot of money, uh, and there's been not a whole lot of accountability on some respects. And of course, we've seen auditors and the media take a lot of scrutiny on some of these purchasing decisions. Now, you're, uh, you're at the Capitol just about every day and talk to a lot of people out there. What have you heard behind the scenes on how Stitt uh, approaches the governorship? Well, behind the scenes, talking to kind of insiders, um, they, they say that he is he's not a, opposed to hearing different viewpoints. Um, you know, sometimes he, he likes to challenge his 
cabinet people and, and agency directors. Um, he will go toe-to-toe with them, but he understands, too, that he still has that mentality of even if you hash this out and he makes a decision, he expects that decision to be done. And if, if you don't do that, then you may be coming to, to some criticism from him and definitely might get frozen out of future decision-making processes. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, You can uh, read Paul's contribution to the series of stories about the state under Stitt at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.